The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. If you're new here, we've been going through a series uh, called uh, Refocus. We finished it last week. We spent the month of August there. We find it helpful, or I find it helpful, at uh, certain times of the year to kind of take a, a moment and get a kind of reassess where I am in life, um, because otherwise, I don't know about you, but I kind of get in uh, cruise control, and I just kind of cruise, and I, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one in this room that has this experience, but sometimes, like, I'll just wake up, and, and sort of like, a, you ever been, like, on a stretch of road, uh, maybe between uh, Columbia and Florence, and all of a sudden, like, you realize, like, I don't remember the last 20 miles, like, you don't know what happened, like, I'm, I'm just kind of freaky, I don't know if I fell asleep, or if I just zoned out, if I got hypnotized, but I, I have a whole stretch of my trip that was missing, sometimes I do that with life. And sometimes I'll wake up and I'll be like, I just like sleepwalked through days and weeks and I, I know I did stuff. I got up and I went to work, work and I did stuff with the kids and, you know, but I don't know what happened. I just sort of like, whew, it's all gone. And it's helpful to have a few moments to stop and refocus on our lives. And that's what we did in the month of August. And we refocused around what we call our four pillars here at Docs. It's our four values that we build who we are around. When we started as a church plant with a little core team of people, we said, we don't know what we're gonna look like five years from now, but we know that if you cut us down the middle and open us up and look inside, this is what we're gonna be about. It's gonna be the DNA of who we are and what we get excited about. And it's these banners here, that they've uh, these banners, because we're obviously we're a set up and tear down church every week, and so these banners have seen better days. In fact, we had to um, see worship's kind of tearing at the top. It's time to get some new ones. The the legs of the community were falling off, like literally this morning. We had to send people out to search for it. But um, this, these are the four pillars that we're about. Jesus, worship, community, and mission. We believe and we know that Jesus is the one for whom by whom you were created and for whom you were created. And you and I cannot know meaning and pleasure in life until we have found our attachment to him, until we've bowed our knee to him as the Lord of heaven and earth, as the maker of heaven and earth, and the one for whom your heart cries out for. At those moments at night whenever you're lying in bed and you're just about to fall asleep, those really honest moments that you have with yourself where you're not fooling yourself like everything's awesome, like the Lego movie, but you're actually have a moment of reality with yourself where you're like, if you don't have kids, you have no idea what I just mentioned, but if you have kids, I assure you, you know, because behind Frozen, Lego Movie was the big movie the past 12 months, Lego Movie, everything is awesome, that song gets stuck in your head. Those moments where you're not convincing yourself that everything's awesome, where you're left with the truth that, hey, there has to be more to this life than what I'm experiencing now, he is the one that your heart is longing for, and you'll never know meaning You'll never know pleasure in your life until you've bowed your knee to him and discovered the joy of joyful submission to the one for whom you were created and by whom you're created. And whenever your heart is connected to him in reality, then something happens, you explode and worship back to him. 
you can't help it because we are all worshipers. When you see something that's of value, you worship it. You give yourself to it. I don't know how many of you guys yesterday were sitting in front of your TV with your, um, you know, if God forbid, your Gamecock hat or your shirt on or, you know, maybe if God's smiled on you, your orange, your tiger paw on your shirt and you're, you're cheering your team on whenever they score the touchdown and South Carolina kind of eked out the win and Clemson, you know, I don't know, 70 points, I don't know, who, who, who's keeping track? But, but the, you, and you're just like, you get excited because your team scored because you see something of beauty and value and you respond to it. And whenever you meet the one, the ultimate value of the whole universe, you respond with your whole life to him. And we discover that all of life is to be worshiped. And then whenever you, whenever you see him for who he is and you see like, hey, my right standing before God and before men, my value, my identity isn't based upon like how like awesome I look today or how awesome I feel today or how awesome I feel about the bottom line of my bank account or the wheels that I drove up in or the car that I'm going home to or the job that I'm gonna be at tomorrow morning or how great and good looking and athletic and smart my kids are. Whenever I, whenever I discovered that my identity doesn't rest in any of those things, but it rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf, then I can be real. We can be real with each other and have real, authentic community. Because you know what keeps a barrier between us having community with each other? Because I'm scared that you're going to know my crap. I'm scared that you're going to know what a absolute dirtbag I really am if you really come and get close to me. I'm scared that you're gonna find out how much I don't have my life together if you come and stop by my house on a Tuesday when I'm not expecting you. But if we realize that my identity and value isn't based upon any of those things, it's based upon what Jesus did for me and therefore the love that he has put upon me, then I can be secure and be real with you guys at just what an absolute mess I am. And that creates authentic community. And then as Christians, we don't just live together like, hey, isn't this an awesome group of people? We just love hanging out with each other. No, because we discovered the one for whom we were created as a community, we live a life on mission together to proclaim with our lives and with our words and with our actions the glory of Jesus Christ that we found. And that's why last week we covered the mission. That's what we do as a church at Dachshund. That is that we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. To be a disciple isn't something that you have to grit your teeth through. It's not something you have to check off a list every single day to say, I did it, so therefore I can feel okay about myself or, or like I'm not gonna do these things that God says not to do and I'm gonna force myself to do these things he says to do. Whenever you discover the joy of Jesus, life of service, of joyful submission to him is exactly that joyful. You don't have to grit your teeth through it. And so therefore you want other people to meet the one that you have met. You ever had a really awesome meal? Or listen to a really cool song like you're alone in the car and you hear this new song or a new band or you or you like you're one of like the weirdos like me and you go to the movies alone and you see this awesome movie? You don't, just like, you don't just like get in the car and say, oh, that was cool. What do you do? You're tweeting and you're Facebooking and you're calling people and you're saying, hey, you gotta come see this movie with me. You gotta listen to the song. You gotta, you gotta try this meal. Why? Because just by nature, when we experience something amazing, we want other people to experience it as well. That's what it means to live life on mission. 
It means letting other people know the awesome thing that you have found in Jesus Christ. So this week, we're starting a new series in the book of Corinthians, and we're going to be here a while. We're just camping in the book of Corinthians. Um, we're going to be here through, we're, we're pretty pleased with ourselves. The Josh, the intern, and I uh, hold, got, hold ourselves away in the what we call Doxa World Headquarters, which is a glorified um, walk-in closet, really, uh, that, we've, that we call our office. And uh, we, he and I hold ourselves up in there one afternoon, and we planned, we feel very pleased with ourselves, we planned the next nine months. We know what we're going to be preaching on and who's going to be preaching. As long as something doesn't blow up, this is what we're going to be doing for the next nine months. And the reason that we're doing that is because as a church plant, um, we run into uh, we run into a lot of things as people come in, they're getting to know who we are and we're getting to know who they are. And what, what we find is that most everyone, not everyone, but most everyone has had some sort of experience, whether positive, most likely negative, with the church. Anybody here had a, well, we'll do a little show of hands. Anybody here either had a, had a you, you've, you, you had a positive experience at some point with church? You raise your hand, Anybody? Anybody here had a negative experience with church? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah. So exactly, I just proved my point. Most everybody has, has either a positive or a negative experience with church. And because of that, then most of us have sort of assumptions about what church should be or shouldn't be, right? I mean, and it's, let's be honest, since you walked in here, whether you're called docs at home or you're just visiting or you're, you're looking for your school, your kid's classroom and you just don't know what, you just happen to be in here at the same time. Like, if, if you're here for some reason, and ever since you walked in the doors, maybe before you walked in the doors, you had certain assumptions and you were judging us by those assumptions that you had. Hey, I do it too. Let's just be honest with these. You're like, hey, they do this well. They don't do this well. They should have greeted me like this. They should have done this. Why do they have the chairs like this? Why is the volume like this? They picked the wrong song. That person's off key. This dude, he keeps on babbling over and over again. What is he talking about? He thinks he's funny. He's not really funny. When is he going to get to the meat of the sermon? Is this the sermon? Like, you guys are asking these questions the whole time yet because you and I all have assumptions about what church should be and what it shouldn't be. And we come into a church with those assumptions. And because of those assumptions, we all come in with expectations. If you've had really bad experience with the church, then you come in with bad expectations. And you're just waiting for somebody to talk about you behind your back. Or you're just waiting for the preacher to offend you. Or you're just waiting for somebody to say that thing that's been said to you before that hurt your feelings. And it's going to happen all over again. You're just expecting that. Some of you, like, you're coming in here and, like, you're like, all right, impress me. Like, I expect you to impress me this morning. I want you to be, I want the sermon to knock it out of the park. I want the band to be perfect. I want there to be, like, lights and lasers. Just, like, impress me. Like, coddle me. Like, make me feel comfortable and, and awesome. Like, I'm just that awesome dude. We all come in with expectations about church, whether good or bad, somewhere in the mix. And so the problem is, when you get this many people in a room that have all different assumptions, all different experiences, and all different expectations about what church is and has been and should be, what is that a recipe for? It's a recipe for a mess. And then if you add to that the fact that most of us in this room, I would say close to 100% of us in this room are pretty messed up. I don't know some of you personally, some of you I know really well, and you guys are messed up. 
Some of you I'm getting to know and I'm discovering how messed up you are. And some of you I haven't met yet, but I still know that you're messed up. We all have really, really, some of us have strong strengths, but all of us have really strong weaknesses. And when you put a bunch of people that have a bunch of weaknesses in a room together and say, all right, start doing life together, worship together, live in community with each other, like know each other's business, like know what's going on in your life, what's that a recipe for? It's a recipe for a lot of mess and a lot of heartache for a lot of disappointment. And the book of 1 Corinthians is about a church just like that. The city of Corinth was a major city in the Roman Empire. If you are familiar with your geography, which uh, your, Gre- your Grecian geography, which I'm sure there's some experts in the room, but if you're, if you're familiar with your Grecian geography, if you picture the country of Greece, which is just like a, doesn't look like anything, it's just like a bunch of whatnot, and then there's a, there's a bunch of whatnot up here and a bunch of whatnot right here, and this is, this part on the bottom is connected to the part of the mainland Greece by this little tiny, what you call, it's like a neck. It's like a little turkey neck that connects it. It's called an isthmus. It's, uh, and in between uh, this little bunch of mess down here and this bunch of Grecian mess up here is this little isthmus. And right in the middle of this isthmus was the city of Corinth. And it was a very important city because if you think about it, it controlled trade and commerce and travel between northern Greece and southern Greece. You had to pass through the isthmus. And it was only about maybe three and a half miles wide. So you had to pass through the city of Corinth. And then because of, uh, because of the way the, the Mediterranean and the little up here, the little thing is up here, I just forgot the name of it. Because it would take 200 extra miles to go around the, the south end of Greece, they actually would set up these two ports on either side of the isthmus, and they would, if, they would, if, you, had a, if you had a big boat, they would actually unload the boat, take the cargo across the isthmus, and load it onto another boat on the other side. If you had a little boat, they would actually take it out of the water and roll it across the three and a half miles and drop it in the, the sea on the other side. So, Corinth was a city at its zenith, had about 600,000 people that lived there, which is huge for an ancient city, and usually had somewhere in the neighborhood about 250,000 people living there. It had become very rich. It was actually destroyed by the Roman Empire in 146 BC, but Julius Caesar came along, and he was a super smart guy, and he said, hey, we're going to actually rebuild the city, and it just took off. And so it's sort of like... like not that Myrtle Beach is a major city, but sort of like Myrtle Beach in that like, it went from being nothing to being something like in a few years. So all of a sudden, like, people were making money and people were moving into the area. They didn't have a history. There was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of uh, new people coming in, all in the mix together. They were all hanging out. And so it was a very important commercial center. It was fast growing. There was a lot of money to be made there. A lot of money had been made there over an actually short period of time. And then Paul shows up in the city of Corinth. And, uh, and when he does, he meets a, a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And they spent 18 months in Corinth in the mid-50s, not 1950s. Sticking with me, like 50 AD. Uh, it's in the, in the mid-50s, planting this church in Corinth. And some really cool stuff happened. And then Paul leaves and he goes to the city of Ephesus. And while he's in the city of Ephesus for about close to three years or somewhere in that neighborhood, he, 
he hears reports back from this church that he started to, that he planted, that he spent time with, that God moved powerfully in, and he had left people in charge and he moved on. He starts hearing reports about like some weird stuff's going on there. And he ends up at some point uh, either sending them a letter or getting a letter from them first. We're not sure what. And then he sends them a letter and he's answering questions. We don't know what all questions he was answering because we don't have this letter that has survived yet. But, we, but he refers to it in the book of 1 Corinthians about his last letter to them. And here's how we know like the church at Corinth was a church kind of like ours. Uh, this is the stuff that, that they were dealing with. He said that there. They had divisions in their church. They had bad theology. They were having sex with each other, all kinds of weird things. There's one dude, he, he, had, uh, he was sleeping with his dad's wife. So you think you came up from a messed up church situation. They were suing each other as Christians. They had misunderstandings of marriage. Uh, they had chaotic church meetings. Like he's addressing their church meetings. He's saying, hey, like everybody shouldn't be talking at once. Seems like it should be obvious, but they were all getting together and all talking at once. Uh, they were mistreating the Lord's Supper. They were mistreating the lower class in their midst. Uh, they, were, they had questions about whether they should like, still participate in their pagan religions. Uh, they had questions about the bodily resurrection of believers. Like, it was a messed up place. Uh, the church in Corinth was a pretty ugly church. It had a lot of mess going on. So if you and I think that coming into church, like we've been hurt and we've been disappointed and we're waiting to be hurt and disappointed here or wherever you're a part of now, like you think that maybe that's the way it shouldn't be, like number one, that's the way it always has been. The church has always been a little messed up. In fact, even before the New Testament, with this, uh, uh, God calls the nation of Israel like his bride and he calls his bride a whore. He says, you have been my bride, but you constantly whore yourselves out to other gods. I've called you my own. I've bought you with a price. I've pulled you to myself. I've given you everything that I can give you. And yet you keep going out in the middle of the night and whoring yourself out to other gods. And I don't know about you, but I kind of do that. Last night I took a walk in the middle of the night. I was doing some preparation for the sermon and kind of felt convicted and I went out and took a walk and I just had to acknowledge, I was embarrassed with myself, I just had to acknowledge to God that I'd just been in cruise control for a few days, a few weeks maybe, a couple weeks. I hadn't really, I got caught up in the busyness of life and I wasn't really thinking about him, serving him, my heart wasn't fresh after him, I'd grown cold towards him because I was whoring myself out to other gods. I'm looking for pleasure, looking for identity. I'm looking to get my kicks out of whether somebody says the sermon was good or not or whether my, my business does well this week or this month. That's sort of my history as a Christian. Maybe that's your history as well. And when you bring us a bunch of people together like that, it's gonna be a pretty ugly church. Let's see what Paul says to the city, to the church at Corinth, Verse that Grace read. Thank you, Grace. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. It's interesting. We'll, we'll get to this. We'll tie it in in just a minute. But Paul says that he was 
called by the will of God to be an apostle. He wasn't appointed an apostle. He didn't make himself an apostle. Nobody made him apostle. Like God called him to be an apostle. Then look down in verse two, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, this, this entry, this beginning of the letter to the church of Corinth that Paul is writing it's interesting because out of his other letters to the churches, this one's shorter. He usually is kind of flowery and like, oh, I'm so happy to talk to you. I'm Paul and you are the church in Corinth and Corinth is a great city and you guys are awesome and I'm giving thanks for you. And it's, he kind of has a long salutation at the beginning, but this salutation is shorter than others because Paul is getting ready because of all those things I just read. I mean, they're having sex with each other. They have bad, really bad theology. They're fighting with each other. They're infighting. They're fighting about who they're following. Like I follow Paul, I follow Paul. Paul is sort of like saying, I follow Dale, I follow Randy, or like, I follow uh, Matt Chandler. No, I follow uh, um, Perry, Ma- Perry Mason. That's another guy. <laughs> oh, maybe you follow Perry Mason. I follow Perry Noble, you know, whatever you're saying. Like, well, I listen to this, I read this guy, I do this. And Paul is getting ready to light into them for the sin that they have in their midst and how they've forgotten the gospel. But before he lights into them, he reminds them of something, and he reminds them himself of something. You may be messed up. You may be straying far from God. You may have forgotten. It may have been a long time since you had a tear come to your eye because of the beauty that is found in Jesus Christ. It may be a long time since the cross sounded like something precious to you. It may be a long time since you read your Bible Maybe a long time since you read your Bible and it meant anything to you. It may be a long time since you heard a worship song that moved your heart. It may be a long time since you heard a sermon that stirred your soul. You may feel like you're dry and God is a million miles away and you have separated yourself from him and you know you aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing in your life. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the part of the church. Not only that, he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. That word sanctified means to be set apart. I don't know what your life looks like. I don't know if you're a Christian today. I don't know if, if you are a believer. It may have been a long time since your heart was stirred by Jesus, since you bowed your eyes, bowed your head and closed your eyes to actually pray apart from for a meal or a service. Maybe a long time since you opened the Bible and it meant anything to you. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you have been sanctified by God. And what Jesus did on the cross on your behalf to justify you you were a sinner separated from him is still in effect. It hasn't been overcome by your sin or by your lack of attention to him. It hasn't been overcome by your hard heart. He called you. He sanctified you. He put you in his church, in his bride. You are his. You're sanctified. 
set apart by him and for him. Called, look at that, he used that word called again. So the same, the same wording that he uses about how he was called to be an apostle. Nobody appointed him, nobody made him, no committee met to make him an apostle. They use the same wording when he call, talks about us, called by God. That means he didn't just like call you like he called you over the phone and said, hey, uh, we're having a party tonight. If you want to drop by, like feel free to drop by. Or, or hey, if you want to be a Christian, come by, you know, sometime if you're interested. That wording there, he called you, he made you, he grabbed you and he pulled you out and he brought you into his family and, and grafted you in. Called to be saints. Think about that. All of us, almost everybody in this room says you've had some sort of experience with the church that's been bad. You know what? Those people, they were saints. You want know here, you, today, I don't know what your life has looked like again the past few months, past few years. You're a believer in Christ. You're a saint. Your life may not look like it. Your words may not sound like it. If we're to like come home with you today and listen to your, you know, spy on your family and see what does a day in the life of your family look like. It may not sound like it, but you're a saint. Not because... <laughs> Everything's okay back there. I think that was scripted. I think that's part of the plan back there. Um, you're a saint, not because of your actions, because of what Jesus has done for you, because he called you to be a saint. Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Listen, look at that. Together, both their Lord and ours. So he's talking to a church, not only a church that is like, that has gone crazy. I heard one guy, he did a series on First Corinthians one time, and he called it Christians Gone Wild, because this church is just like kind of out of control. And to those people, a church kind of out of control, he says, your saints, but then to a church that's filled with divisions. They're filled with divisions inside. They weren't letting like the poor people come and partake of the, of the table. They were treating like people inside the church as classes. Um, and they were, they were arguing with, we're gonna see later on down the line, they were arguing with Paul. Paul who came and planted the church, he's an apostle. They're kind of saying now like, hey, now we're spiritual and you're not spiritual enough to tell us what to do anymore. And to a church that's rife with divisions, you ever been a part of a church that has divisions? Maybe they fight over big stuff, or maybe they fight over what style of music or the carpet or like what the preacher should wear or what curriculum they're supposed to use. Like to a church that's rife with divisions, Paul says, you are together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And then he says this, is beautiful to this church that's crazy, that he's gonna light into, that he's going to fuss at, he's gonna spend the rest of this long book that we're gonna spend nine months in trying to correct issues that are going on there. Using some strong language, he first of all says, 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you, the messed up church, the messed up believer. And then he says, I give thanks to my God always for you, which is interesting because he's getting ready to light into them again, but he says, I give thanks to God for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. He's not giving thanks to them because they're doing awesome. He's not doing, giving thanks to them because everything is the way it's supposed to be or even most of the things are the way they're supposed to be. He's giving thanks to God for them because God's grace is at work in their life. And that's what, as Christians, that's what we should celebrate in each other because quite frankly, let's just be honest and be real. There are some people in this room that if I get to know you, I'm not gonna like you very much. We're just gonna clash our personalities, there's people in this room that as you meet people and get to know each other, there's going to be people you just frankly don't like being around. So what do you do if you're part of a church and people see things differently than you see things? They believe different things than you believe. Their personality makes you want to punch them in the face. What do you do with that? What you do is you give thanks for the grace of God that's work in their life. Not for how they're pleasing you or how they're doing things that, the way that you like them to be done, but because of the grace of God that is at work in their life. That in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. Though we're going to see as we continue down the path, like it, it's, it's interesting that he says that they were enriched in every way because they were doing all kinds of the wrong things. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, that's the most important thing, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were not lacking in any gift, but yet they, they were. With all this, how can we say that the bride of Christ is beautiful? Jesus talked about his church as his bride that he was returning for. In the book of Revelation, it's pictured whenever, he, whenever we are reunited with him, it's, it's pictured as a wedding. And he calls the church collectively his bride, and he's the groom, and he's made himself ready, and he's made us ready for him. And we're perfect and spotless and beautiful, being presented to Jesus by the Father. How can we say that? How can we believe that when you and I, our experience with church has been, it's a mess. And we're acknowledging that if we, as we continue with this church plan, if we, as we go along and we build community with each other, it's going to be a mess. I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to let you down. I'm going to sin against you. I'm going to say something I should not say to you or about you that's going to hurt your feelings. And you guys are going to do it with each other. What do we do with that? How can we call it beautiful? Look at verse 8. Who, that's Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? How can we say that the bride is beautiful? How can we say that this church that Jesus died for is a beautiful thing, even though that we admit it's full of heartbreak and disappointment? We can say it's beautiful because its beauty isn't based upon you and I like doing awesome. The beauty is based upon the beauty that Jesus Christ has put upon us. 
because he will sustain you to the end. Paul was writing to them, he's gonna light into them for their sin and their just crazy ways, but he does so in confidence that Jesus Christ will sustain them. He's gonna take them to the finish line at the end, and he's gonna hold them guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You, I don't know what you've done with your life. I don't know how far you've gone as a Christian or before you're a Christian, maybe you're not a Christian today, I don't know what you've done with your life and how unlovely or unlovable or how sinful you think you might be or you actually are. But through the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, through putting your faith and trust in that, you can be guiltless. And as a Christian, you can live the life of someone who will be sustained and will be presented guiltless before Jesus not because of your actions, but all because of his work that's been applied to you. His righteous life, his substitutionary death that gets applied to your account on your behalf. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. That's why he can say that you're beautiful. That's why we can say the church is beautiful. Because God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's how we can say it's faithful. So what do we do with this as we start this chapter, start with this book? First of all, if you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, You can hear the call of the bridegroom to you this morning. To say, though you may be, your sins may be scarlet, though you might be sinful, you might be the worst sinner in the world, you might be far away from him, you can hear his call to you today saying, I can make you white as snow. And I can apply the garment to you of, of my purity my guiltlessness that can unwrap you. And because of that great sacrifice on your behalf, you can bow your knee to him this morning and confess him as your Lord. If you're a believer today, this section should change the way that you think about yourself. How do you judge like your success as a believer, your success as a person? It's to change the way that you think about yourself because you should see yourself set apart, cleansed, and justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Your body is not your own. Your life is not your own. It belongs to him. But the other side of that beautiful coin is neither is your track record your own anymore and your performance your own anymore. You have the track record and the performance of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, applied to you. 
You should take the good and the bad and see it all as justified by Jesus. It should change the way that you think about other believers. You should see them call. Look at each other around this room and you should see them, the ones that annoy you, the ones that frustrate you, the one that you're intimidated by, the one that you don't really want to talk to, the one that you don't understand, the one whose personality is so different from yours or their belief system is so different from yours, has a different background than yours. You should see them as called, set apart, cleansed and justified by the grace and the finished work of Jesus Christ. That would change the way that we respond to each other, wouldn't it? You should take the good and the bad and see it all as justified by Jesus. It should change the way that you and I think about the church. Not just the way that I think about myself or the way that I think about other believers, but it should change the way that we think about church. We should be the, see the church as cleansed, as justified, as set, apart, as set apart by Jesus. We should see the church as the beautiful bride that he is returning for, clothed in beauty and righteousness that he has applied to us. And then it should change the way that you and I think about the future How do you think about the future, of your personal future, our future as a church, or our future as a collective church across the world? It should change us the way that we think about it because in verse eight and nine that we just read, he said, he will sustain us to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not because of our performance, not because of how awesome we are, not because of how great our worship is or how great this sermon is or how many times you read your Bible a week. Guiltless, spotless, set apart, beautiful because of what he has done for us on our behalf. Jesus loves his bride, the church. He died for her. He will perfect her. We must love her too. How do you feel about the church? There's no way that you can love Jesus and not love his bride. There's no way you can love Jesus and be committed to him and not be committed to the bride that he died for and loves and sacrifices life for. this is true, then as believers, we'll be connected to each other deeply. We'll be, we'll be investing ourselves in each other's lives because we see the grace of God at work in each other's lives. And we'll be investing in God's great work as a church. Because in its all its ugly mess, it is beautiful. It's ugly, but it's pretty all at the same time. It's a pretty, ugly bride that we're a part of. And at the end, Jesus alone gets glory for. I'm going to pray. We're going to have a couple of minutes uh, the, where uh, Jamin is just going to play some music. It gives us a chance to kind of have some reflection and prayer. And then Dale is going to come up and he's going to give a, a short little intro to communion, which is what we're doing together. And then uh, Dale and Justin will present the bread and the juice to us. And you, if Whenever you feel free, uh, no rush, any, whenever you feel free, feel led, you can come up, take the bread, dip it in the cup.
partaking the body and blood of Jesus Christ this morning as we celebrate the fact that Jesus gave himself up to purify us on our behalf. Father, I thank you for the fact that uh, those of us who are believers that you've called us to be a part of of this church and all its ugly mess that you've called us to be a part. That's not beautiful because we have it all together. We're not gonna find the beautiful church that has it all together, that we are a part of that church and we bring all our mess ups and all our frailties and all our failures to the mix. But God, we do so knowing that you have called us individually and called us collectively. You have justified us. You have sanctified us. You have set us apart. And you will sustain us to the end, guiltless for your glory. Nobody will be taking any credit on that day because you get all the glory. And Father, I pray that as we take a moment to, to reflect, that if anyone's here that, they're not a part of that church. God, that they would be, um, they would hear the call of the groom this morning and they would bow their knee to the Lord and maker of heaven and earth, the one by whom they're created and the one for whom they were created. And Father, I pray that those of us believers that we would be convicted about, um, about how we viewed ourselves and how we viewed other believers the church and come in with assumptions and expectations that's natural yeah we've let those determine whether we're going to be involved with each other's lives whether i'm going to open myself up whether i'm going to follow after you whether i'm going to be around other people we're going to live in community and let us be convicted by that let us set apart the task of being a part of this pretty ugly church that you would get glory for in the name of jesus i pray Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.